All right, the passage today is Ruth chapter 4. We're going to be going through verses 1 through 12. This is uh, week 6 in our seven-week series uh, through Ruth. So this is the penultimate round, and I never say that word right, so I just said it right for the first time in my life, penultimate. Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. And while you're getting there, man, in this season, do you ever find yourself, or maybe this was more like when you were younger, do you ever find yourself dreaming about something and saying, saying this phrase, I would give anything to fill in the blank, right? Like, man, I would give all that I have to just get or just to attain this or just to arrive at this place. The reason why we say that, the reason why you say that is because, in fact, you don't actually have everything it takes to gain the object that you would give anything uh, to acquire. You, you need help. You need somebody to act on your behalf. And we talk about things of this nature. This brings us to the idea of this thing that we call self-sufficiency, which actually the Bible teaches is in fact a myth that we actually possess no ability to do anything in and of ourselves without some measure of help. And in fact, the idea that we can even be self-sufficient, it has origins. It has its origins in the book of Genesis chapter 3. Remember Adam and Eve, our great, great, great grandma and grandpa, who were created totally and without help by God, eventually determined at one point they didn't want to need God anymore. But they wanted to be like God, who by contrast doesn't need anybody. The problem that Adam and Eve ran into after they rebelled against God was that they lacked self-sufficiency to then carry on like God. That was the rub that that they ran into. And in fact, the first thing that they did was sow fig leaves that God made, by the way, to hide their nakedness from God. And the reason they felt that nakedness, the reason they felt The way that they did was because their sin, in fact, exposed their insufficiency. It exposed their lack of self-sufficiency, which caused them to feel, it says, ashamed. It turns out that they lacked what it took to be like God. And that is why God came down to them, it says after that. And he actually made plans to help them out of their self-sufficiency. They needed someone to regain the relationship they had lost with God but were insufficient to regain by themselves. And that is what we call, in a nutshell, that is what we call redemption. Someone gaining something for you that you are incapable of gaining for yourself. And so for our purposes today, what we want to do when we talk about this word redemption, we want to make sure we don't reduce redemption to simply just a word or just a concept that we just see floating around in church circles. Or maybe you've grown up in church and you've just heard that word like just like brandied about, right? We don't want to do that. We want to understand that redemption is Jesus. Redemption is a person. It is Jesus Christ. We must behold the unsearchable, life-altering, death-defeating beauty of the person who embodies the word 
redemption. And so this is going to be our most important task today. And, and actually every time we open our Bibles, because all of you, including myself, all of you are shouldering burdens right now that you do not have the spiritual shoulders to bear. And in fact, as we've been going through this series, some of you guys can really relate to Ruth, right? You're in a season where things look shaky and they feel unsteady and you can't make heads or tails of what's going to happen tomorrow. It's not clear like you think or like you felt it's been in times past. Some of you guys can really relate to Ruth. Or maybe some of you guys can really relate to Naomi, where things experienced over the past year or maybe over the course of your lifetime are making life in the present really hard and sometimes even unbearable. Things have gotten to that place and that point for you. So the question now becomes, who will relieve you of these burdens that you, as we just established, are insufficient to relieve? Maybe you even acknowledge that you need God to act on your behalf. You roll in to the warehouse, and if somebody sat down with you and said, do you need God? I mean, I don't know. I, it's just a guess, but I'm guessing a lot of you guys are going to be like, absolutely not, Pastor. Shut the lip. We need to shut this convo down ASAP. Like, I don't think that's going to happen. Most of you guys are going to say, yeah, I, I agree. I need God to act on my behalf, but yet it's hard to believe that he will. It's hard to believe he has, right? And if he has, the question is, how does it help you? How does it help you in all the confusing muck and mire of life? That's what we're going to explore today. Let's pray. God, open our eyes now, open our minds and our hearts to the words that we are about to read, that were inspired by you, that were breathed out by you, that are profitable for us is what you tell us. So Lord, change us, transform us, speak to us through your word today and humble us as we receive those words, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, hey, if you're just joining us uh, in our series through Ruth, we've been learning the story of just that, of Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi. Now, Ruth was a widowed, childless immigrant uh, living with her mother-in-law, Naomi, and Ruth ends up finding work in a field owned by a man named Boaz, who turns out is a, a relative of Naomi. And the custom was, back in this particular time, that if a man died with no children, the brother or the next of kin could marry his wife and produce children to keep the name of the deceased husband alive. Like, dude, I know that sounds crazy. And I know if you're a wife right now and you're imagining marrying your brother-in-law, like you're looking at your husband now pleading with him not to die, right? Like, I get that. Like, my wife does that to me all the time. Sorry, Jason, if you're listening to this uh, podcast right now. But that's kind of the reality of it, right? It's just something that we don't really understand at all right? So Ruth's next of kin uh, happens to be a dude named Boaz, and therefore he was known as what was called a uh, redeemer. So Naomi sends Ruth to Boaz with, we talked about last week, with literally a crazier marriage proposal than anything you've ever seen on YouTube. It's just bonkers, right? 
And uh, the upside, though, through all this is that Boaz has, has grown fond of Ruth. She's established herself as a woman of integrity and worth while she's worked in Boaz's field. So Boaz promises to redeem her and keep the inheritance that belonged to her husband within the family. That's how it worked back then. But here's the rub. The rub is that there is another man who's first in line to redeem Ruth. So that's where we actually pick up the story today as Boaz goes to the city gate to take care of business. So just follow along with me. Chapter 4, and we're going to go through the first 12 verses. And it says this, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Verse 7, now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech, and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malan. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malan, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Verse 11, then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. And may you act worthily in Apathra and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. This is God's word. So what we see at the very beginnings here is Boaz going to the gate. And the gate, back in these particular times, the gate was kind of the city of, the, the center of the city where people assembled and did some public business or worked out legal matters. In Ashland, it would be just kind of like saying, hey, we're going to meet over at the courthouse. It would be kind of an equivalent. So what happens is Boaz gathers this unnamed redeemer. Again, we're not given this guy's name, but Boaz gathers him and then he gets 10 elders of the city to be witnesses to this act of redemption that he's going to accomplish for Ruth. And one of the reasons why he had to gather all these people together was because back in this time, there were not a lot of written records. So a lot of these things had to be experienced and had to be confirmed uh, verbally as verbal transactions. And so it turns out as we get to verse 3 that Naomi, 
she ends up having rights to a parcel of land that actually belonged to Elimelech, who we know from the first couple of chapters was her deceased husband. Now, because of her financial state, uh, it was as if this parcel of land was kind of locked for Naomi because she wouldn't have been able to do anything with it given where she was at financially. So selling the land was actually her best option. So in verse 4, Boaz lays out the situation. He calls together this unnamed but near redeemer and lays out what the situation has been up to this point with Naomi. And the man immediately, just immediately agrees to buy the land. He says, I'm all in, right? But not so fast, right? Because then we get to verse 5 and you know, Boaz is like, wait, you know, there, there's more. He says, Ruth the Moabite comes with the deal. Right, so initially this dude just thinks, oh man, I'm going to increase my, my land, you know, I'm going I'm to own a little bit more land, and he doesn't find out till like one second later that there's something a little bit more, just a tiny bit more information that he should probably be aware of, which is that Ruth the Moabite comes with the deal. Now when he mentions Ruth, when Boaz mentions Ruth, the Redeemer, he backs off. He backs off immediately and he says, I cannot do it, I can't do it. A couple of reasons might be for this is that number one, um, it just may have been financially unfeasible for this guy to buy a parcel of land and then take on the burden of another wife or a first wife, which would have been part of the customs uh, from back in that day. Or number two, it very well may be, in fact, that he did not want to marry a woman from Moab. You know, because it's interesting, right? Boaz, he said, Ruth the Moabite, and he might have been like, yeah, that's not really what I had in mind for my future, marrying a woman that is not of Israelite descent. But either way, what we see here very clearly is that Ruth is rejected. Ruth is rejected by an unwilling redeemer. This is somebody who wants the parcel, but not the person. So he puts the ball back in Boaz's court in verse 6, and he says, go ahead, take my right of redemption. Now in verse 7, what we read is that the custom of the day to confirm these kinds of transactions like this was to remove your sandal and give it to the other person. It was a tradition that dated all the way back when you go to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 25. These are just some of the ways that these things were done uh, with eyewitnesses as a way to confirm, as a sign to say, no, 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 this actually happened. We were there. We saw it. We saw the exchange. We saw the sandal exchanging hands. So Boaz confirms with the elders that, that he has redeemed Ruth, and not only Ruth, but all that belonged to Elimelech. And he promises to carry on the name of Ruth's deceased husband. Unlike the other unnamed redeemer, Boaz wanted both the parcel and the person. He wanted to fully redeem what Naomi was offering. And then in verse 9, the elders confirm that they are witnesses to the transaction. And they sort of put a blessing on Boaz. They say, may Ruth be like Rachel and Leah, who we know were the mothers of the 12 sons who made up the tribes of Israel. And then they pray a, another blessing on him that his house may be like the house of Perez, the son of Judah, who like Boaz, if we go back and read that story, redeemed an unwanted woman named Tamar, just like Boaz did with Ruth. So there's a lot of connections here with where Boaz is going and the way that he redeemed Ruth and the blessings that were promised and hoped for because of that act of faithfulness. So we have Boaz, this man of godly character, this man of godly kindness, and he steps up to the plate. 
I mean, he steps up to redeem Ruth, this poor, lowly, immigrant widow. And immediately, immediately we're confronted, aren't we? Like we've been all the way through this book, we're confronted with parallels of how God redeemed us in our state of spiritual poverty by sending Christ to act on behalf of the redemption we all needed. Well, what are those parallels? Well, here's a few of the parallels. Number one is that Boaz acted willingly. Did you guys catch that? Boaz acted willingly. His heart was moved for Ruth. Think of the ways the heart of Jesus has been moved for us. The ways that his heart has been moved for us. Think about the willingness of God to send Christ and the willingness of Christ to be sent by God. Paul Tripp says, from, actually from the same book that uh, Scott's been reading, uh, he says, here's what the Christmas story is all about. A willing Savior is born to rescue unwilling people from themselves because, he says, there ain't no other way. He says is, but I like ain't better. There is no other way. That's what he says. You know, it's interesting. I had a chat with a friend uh, a couple days ago, and they said this to me, and it really stuck out. Um, they made this comment, and they said, I know it's not true, but I live, in, I, I, I live in such a way where I always think that God must have a breaking point. Like, he must reach his end. There must be some limit to, to what all he's going to do in terms of the promises that he's made. And what we know and what we understand and what we see modeled to us here from Boaz about Christ is that he, he doesn't. <laughs> I mean, there's your, there's your profound theological answer for the morning. He, he doesn't. He doesn't because he didn't save you begrudgingly. He didn't save you under compulsion, did he? I mean, think about how valued Ruth must have felt after this. She would come into Boaz's home feeling secure, feeling open, and she wouldn't have been feeling tight or scared. And that's the same for us. We come into the household of God the same way. Why? Well, because Christ endured the cross, because Christ despised the shame, because Christ emptied himself, because Christ humbled himself, because he is our greater Boaz. That's why. Because Hebrews 12.3, he endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not, what, grow weary or faint-hearted so that you would be able to trust that he doesn't have a breaking point. He stands while we break. You know, it's so interesting when you think about our sense of willingness and the limitations that we have, right? I mean, we have limitations on what we're willing to do and what we're not willing to do. I'm, I'm, willing to, I'm willing to pay for this, but I'm not willing to pay for this, right? I'm willing to go this far, but, you know, that's as far as I can go. We think God has similar limitations, too. And you know what? He does have limitations. He is unwilling to tolerate sin. So, he sent Jesus... Jesus to free us from the limitations of sin. That's what God did for us. That's the limitlessness 
of God acting willingly on our behalf. And that willingness still extends. He's still willing. He's still willing to act on your behalf. He is still acting on your behalf. So Boaz acted willingly. Number two, Boaz did what needed to be done for the good of Ruth. He did what needed to be done in the same way God did what needed to be done by sending Christ to purchase salvation for us on the cross. Here's the thing. There's nothing missing. When we look at the story of Boaz, there was, no, there was nothing missing. The transaction was complete. He did everything that needed to be done. God did everything that needed to be done when he sent Christ. He's not withholding anything. Oh my gosh, we think God is like Santa, don't we? Better watch out, better not cry, better not pout. Right? I mean, we think that like he's holding qualifiers over our heads. As if like the kind of day or the kind of week or the kind of year you're having somehow cripples God. But you think that. And so do I. When Christ died on the cross, what did he say? Man, he said it's finished. It was complete. Which, by the way, leads us back to ask, where is Ruth during this whole thing? Where is she? What's going on with Ruth? What is she doing? Well, we kind of have a picture of what she's doing because Naomi told us in the last chapter to wait. So we know that Ruth is waiting for Boaz to act. Ruth is trusting Boaz to act, right? Ruth is believing Boaz will act. At no point does Ruth come into the picture. I don't know what I just read. Maybe you read something I didn't read. But in no time does Ruth come into the picture and say, hey, Boaz, it's been a few hours. Uh, I don't know if this is going to help you out, but I can. She doesn't offer anything. She had nothing to offer Boaz. There was nothing for Ruth to do. And in the same way, we have no hand to lend God toward our redemption. And if we could, if you could lend a hand it would, number one, be incomplete. It would be incomplete. We would just pick and choose what we wanted redeemed and what we didn't want redeemed, right? It would be insufficient. You know what we'd be like? We'd be like the first dude. We'd want the parcel, but not the person. Or number two, it would mean that God was unable to be God. If we have any hand in our redemption, what does that say about the God that sent Christ to redeem us so that we could have redemption? So all of this stuff that we do, whether consciously or subconsciously, to earn our way to God is an affront to God. Because it's like saying, no, no, you really didn't know. You really didn't know what to do because I have some play in this game. That's what we're saying. And God clearly has said from the beginning to the end of all of Scripture, you ain't got no play. You got nothing in this game but what I give you. you. Guys ever have backup plans for things? We always have backup plans, right? Like, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to build this thing, and in case it falls, I got this thing underneath it I built. As you can tell, I'm not a builder. I'm saying all this language. Uh, I got this thing underneath it that when this thing that I built collapses, this thing won't collapse, Right? So what we do is we establish backup plans for everything. Why do we do that? Because everything fails. 
And we have to have backup plans so that the thing that we really want to not fail, when it does inevitably fail, we have something so that everything doesn't go crumbling. You are not God's backup plan. I am not God's backup plan. God chose all of you to save that he's saved and sent Jesus to accomplish all it took to save you. In every message, we're probably going to say something about that, by the way. Romans 8, 3 through 4 says, For God has done with the law that we can't keep, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh now, but according to the Spirit. The plan that God hatched was a plan that only he could hatch and only he could finish. God did everything he could do for us like Boaz did for Ruth. And thirdly, Boaz had witnesses. Boaz had 10 men who confirmed his act of redemption. You know what that leads us to? It leads us to understanding that we as the church are witnesses to God's act of redemption in one another's lives. Our lives are testimony to the fact that God saves poor and lowly sinners and that he is worth trusting, that he is worth following, that he is worth ownership over our lives. Do you think of your life like that? Do you think of your life as a living testimony, as a, as a living witness to the transformative work that God accomplishes in those he redeems? Because, dude, I, that, that is the before and after ad, right, in Parade Magazine. That is the true before and after ad in Parade Magazine. In other words, we are the salvation version of those before and after pictures, right? Yeah, I know, some of us still need to lose a few pounds. Don't take that literal. But spiritually, we are the before and after version of the picture that God painted for our redemption. That's who we are. We give testimony to the work of Christ. 1 John 5, 10 and 11 says, Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. It's a living testimony. And then it says, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. Saying, no, 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 God, you're almost sufficient, but there's a little my sufficiency that sort of gets sprinkled in. But he says, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning the Son. And this is the testimony. So in case you were wondering, what's this testimony, Martin? Well, he says it right here. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. If there was any other way for you to be redeemed, God would not have sent his Son. That needs to be clearly understood or no good, as Charles Dickens would say, can come from any of our lives. So here's what we have today. We have two redeemers on the table for Ruth, but only one, only one was sufficient to redeem. Who or what acts as redeemer in your life? And here's what I mean. 
If you're depending on your own acts of righteousness to redeem you, to regain the relationship that was already lost, hear this clearly, that was already lost between you and God the day you were conceived. Know this, you do not have what it takes. You are insufficient. You might have some stuff. You might have a track record of some decent morality. You might have that. You might have some random acts of kindness. You might have a record of some charitable service. You might have years of loyal friendships. Good. You might have devoted decades of marriage. You might be able to brag about some loving and sacrificial parenting. You might have a solid run of church attendance. You might be a man or woman of high character, of honorable attributes. All of those things may be true. They are all insufficient. They're not good enough. None of Ruth's accomplishments were sufficient. It wasn't her character. It wasn't how dedicated she was to picking the grain out of the field. None of those things came into play for Ruth. It was an act of total and complete grace. Totally undeserved. Born out of the love of Boaz. Do you wonder what might have been going on with Ruth while she was waiting for all of this to unfold? Because it's easy to talk about this, right? But this was a real person. This was a woman waiting for something to unfold of which she did not know the outcome. Do you ever wonder what was going on in her head? Because we're not, we're not told what's going on in her head. We don't know what was going on. We don't know what kind of anxiety or fear was going on in her life, worrying about whether this other redeemer was going to step up to the plate. I don't know. Her life could have taken one of two turns, and yet she was powerless to do anything except wait. She was powerless to do anything except trust that God, who had been faithful, would continue to be faithful. But the not knowing is hard, isn't it? It's hard. It was hard for Ruth. Not seeing is hard. You know, if you walk through the woods in Freer Field, which, which Melissa and I do quite a bit, um, man, they're so bare right now. I mean, all the leaves are gone. The trees, they look dead. It's just branches. It's very wintry. It's very stark. But the trees aren't dead. If you walk in, you might think they were. But they're just bare. It's just that you can't see the roots, right? Ruth's life had not changed when Boaz was at the gates. She was just waiting. Her life was still where her life was at. If Ruth's friends came around, her life looked no different for her. Did it? They may have said, yeah, he's going to redeem you, Ruth. Is that what you think? Like you could see some of them saying that to her. Ruth may have had so many doubts. Ruth may have thought, I know it. Boaz is going to just hand me off to this other redeemer so he doesn't have to deal with me. She may have had crippling doubts. And yet, what do we see? We see that whatever she thought didn't change the character and the actions of Boaz. Whatever you're thinking, whatever you're doing right now, the Lord is acting in the same ways that Boaz acted for Ruth. Thank God 
that he doesn't act based on your feelings, but on his faithfulness. And what this helps us understand is that redemption is everything. And because it's everything, it's enough. And so my encouragement to you is to do this. If you've been saved, if you are somebody who can say, yes, I've been redeemed by the blood of Christ, revisit your redemption. Revisit it. It's the reason why all the hard places you find yourself in, you are going to find yourself in, will ever have any meaning. Now, I talk to a lot of you and you start sentences like this. You say, Ronnie, I need to trust God, but pause on that. Pause on that but. Recognize your need. You have a need to trust God because why? Because you're insufficient. That's why God's act of redemption in your life is everything. It's the day that you finally saw yourself for who you really are. Which means you can finally see God for who he really is. Ruth was going to know something a little more about Boaz after this. It was one thing for Boaz to say, hey, I'm going to redeem it. It was another thing to redeem it. But that's what he did, right? Boaz became more than a relative to Ruth. If you've been redeemed, it's because God became more than just the author of the Bible. More than just a guy you've been singing about since you were forced to go to church. It's because he became your redeemer. That's the difference. So revisit your redemption every day to remind yourself of your insufficiency and God's sufficiency. And maybe you haven't been redeemed. Maybe you can't revisit something because you've never received it. So receive redemption. Maybe you realize this morning you have never been redeemed. You realize you don't have a restored relationship with God. Maybe you thought you did. Because you now see you are insufficient to earn it. And really, if you're just honest... If you're just honest, man, you just go through life keeping a tally of things that you've done. You finally realize that all the good things you've done have not been good enough. How does one receive then this act of redemption? Well, first off, by knowing you need it. That's the first step. By knowing you need it, then repenting of your sins to receive it and then trusting that God has completed it. I mean, you can, you can phrase that a bunch of different ways. That's what I got this morning. What happens next, though, is freedom. What was Boaz really purchasing for Ruth? Her freedom. To do what? To live. And to be fruitful. Christ has set you free when he redeems you to live a life that pleases him, that he now, in fact, gives you the power to live. And when you fail, and you will, you have Christ's act of redemption to fall back on as your security because he will never leave you or forsake you. Will you receive this redemption? Will this become the most important story in your life like it was going to be for Ruth? Because Ruth would always trace the story, wouldn't she? We don't know how long she lived. We're not really told that information. But Ruth would always be able to trace the story of God's great love that he showed to her through Boaz. It would be a story told for thousands of years. We're telling it now. 
Let God's act of redemption in your life be the story of the God who redeemed your life. A story of how God was willing, how God did everything that needed to be done, and how he gave you a testimony of eternal life in Jesus Christ to be a light in a weary world. Amen? Let's pray. God, forgive us for for treating this redemption, this act of redemption, Lord, that you've provided to us through Christ so lightly in our lives, for not seeing the weight of it, for not letting the joy of it and the truth of it uphold us. Lord, forgive us for letting our feelings be what dictate the courses of our lives, Lord, the directions that we take. Lord, remind us once again that you are sufficient. Your grace is sufficient for us, just like in Ruth's case, it was because of Boaz. Lord, this is not a truth that we can revisit too often, but it is certainly one that we don't revisit often enough. And I pray during this season, during this time, as your church, Lord, that we would be a people that would be taken back to this place. We go back to the roots of our salvation, which was this act of redemption, Lord. Let it give us the freedom that it provides us. Lord, grow us in these deep and beautiful truths. Let us see our insufficiency and let that lead us not to despondency, but let it lead us to a delight in your sufficiency. Lord, we bring so many things to the table this morning. There's so many things, so many worries there's so much brokenness we bring to the table at Christmas time. We know that. Lord, we pray for courage to face it. We pray for hearts of conviction to repent of those things that this text has surfaced in our hearts. And Lord, for those who don't know you, for those who realize that they have not received this act of redemption but have been relying on their own acts of righteousness, Lord, we pray that you would break them down, that you would give them soft hearts Lord, that they would come to you, that they would repent of their sins, or that they would experience a restored relationship with you even now as I speak. Because this is your desire, Lord, and this is the mission of our church. So I pray that you would act as only you can act, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.